All right, so we finally finish up Luke chapter 4 this week. <clears throat> Just a little bit of review if you weren't here last week to catch us up where we're at. When we get to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, then we move on to verse 14, we have a little bit of a transition here in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We've had basically until chapter 4, verse 13, it's the preparatory work for Jesus' public ministry. And then in verse 14, he launches into the public ministry. So if you can remember that, which has paved the way. First, you have the birth of Christ. You have this miraculous birth accounted for us. And the buzz about this one is starting to build even at his birth as it talks about the people everywhere seeing, talking, wondering about what was coming. Then you have John the Baptist, whose entire ministry was a ministry of preparation for the person and the work of Jesus Christ as he would come crying, Behold the Lamb of God. And then we move on to that, and we move, the author then takes us back in time a little bit, but we start to see the preparation then of Jesus himself. You see that little glimpse into his life as a 12-year-old, as he's in Jerusalem, and he's left, but his family leaves, and he's kind of left behind there, and they find him later talking to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders are blown away at his understanding of the Scripture. And you see that even that you have Jesus here in his humanity being filled with the Word of God, understanding really the Word of God in preparation for his public ministry. And then we come to his baptism, the end of chapter 3, and you see now he is set apart for ministry. So he has Word, he has sacrament, preparing him for ministry. Then the Spirit comes and dwells upon him uniquely there in that baptism. And then we see the Spirit remains with him after the baptism as he goes into his temptation experience, his wilderness experience, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. In the preparatory work of Jesus, now full of the Word, full of Spirit, now in his most vulnerable moment, 40 days of fasting, facing 40 days of temptation, his wilderness experience. And we see not only is it preparing Jesus for his ministry, but it is also showing us that the second Adam is far better than the first. Where Adam failed in his temptation in the garden, Jesus does not fail in his temptation. And his act of obedience is accounted to us. Where Israel failed as, as the Son of God, as they are called in the Old Testament, his children, as they failed in their wilderness experience, in their temptation, Jesus Christ, the true and perfect Son of God, does not fail. And he comes out of that temptation experience now, and it tells us the Spirit was upon him, and he begins his ministry, but we're left with a mark that Satan will continue to look for opportune times to come and to destroy the Son of God. And so that's where we were last week, and so we saw that Luke gives basically no time, two verses to the first uh, spring, Galilean spring as it's called, of, of Jesus' ministry where he, there's some success in his preaching and people are amazed and astonished as he goes from synagogue to synagogue teaching and performing miracles. We know just enough to know that by the time he comes back to his hometown in Nazareth, the people are, there's, the buzz is, is electric. They're excited for the return of Jesus to the synagogue. And so he comes back to his hometown and the place is packed and he stands before them and he opens the scripture and he preaches, he reads from the scroll. As that scroll is carefully unruled. If you, you remember last week we took some time to talk about that synagogue worship. And he reads from Isaiah 61 
And we find it in Luke 4, 18 and 19. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he did, as was custom, he finished the reading, the scroll would be put away, the teacher would take his seat as a sign of authority, congregation stands and he delivers his sermon, and here it is, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we bump down to verse 43 of our text today. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And we start to see the purpose of God. We start to see what this message really is, and it is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, in me the kingdom is upon you. The kingdom is being inaugurated. He even says there at the end of verse 43, it is His purpose. This is why He came. This is His purpose. To proclaim the good news, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so with that word on the kingdom of God, He inaugurates a kingdom. And yet we see as he goes on the excitement, the overwhelming anticipation and amazement at Jesus Christ as he continues in his message there in Nazareth. By the time he gets to the end and he really describes what the character of the kingdom of God is, it is for those who are oppressed. It is for those who recognize their poverty. He makes that distinction, which is important for us to remember. It might seem like a small thing, but it's an important distinction. As he quotes from Isaiah, if you remember in Isaiah, the the promise is the jubilee of jubilees, the, the day of the Lord's favor is coming, but it is also connected with the day of vengeance and wrath. But as Jesus quotes Isaiah here in chapter 61, he leaves off that part of Isaiah, the day of vengeance and wrath. And the people would have realized that. And so they want to know, okay, how are the poor released? How are the oppressed released if God is not bringing vengeance on the oppressor? And for them, it is an ethnic and a racial thing that they think as Jewish people, as privileged people, God is coming to set up for them a kingdom, but their view of the kingdom is not right. It's social, political, military. And the way that kingdom is going to be set up for them is that God is going to overcome their oppressors with vengeance and wrath. But we see Jesus is separating the two and that He is coming and offering Redemption and rescue, long-suffering and graciousness. And vengeance is coming, but it's not right on top of each other. We still await that vengeance of the Lord. And then we also see the character of the kingdom is very different than we thought. It's not for a certain people or a certain race or, or a certain heritage or class of people, but it is for those who recognize they are poor, impoverished, Not just financially, but people who realize they need rescued. It is for the humble. And God's not coming to do some sign to convince them, but He tells them to believe by faith. And we see that with Naaman, the Syrian army leader, and in the widow of Zarephath, He uses them as illustrations. People outside of the right ethnic group who God calls and they act by faith. Humility, faith, and obedience mark the kingdom of God. And the people 
who were so excited to hear the message of Jesus, by the end of his sermon, this is an exaggeration, by the end of the sermon, they literally take him to the edge of town and they're going to throw him off a cliff and kill him. That's not the kingdom they want. So Jesus Christ inaugurates the kingdom. As we come there in verse 43, we see it's the first time that the word kingdom is used in Luke. By my count, it's, well, I shouldn't say my count. By my search on Logo software, <laughs> kingdom will be used 37 more times or 38 times total. So he's going to keep coming back to it and coming back to it and coming back to it. The kingdom of God. So the kingdom has been inaugurated. Before we look specifically at our text to see how Jesus relates to the kingdom, how his ministry relates to the kingdom, I thought, I want to make sure we're all thinking the same thing when we say the kingdom of God. There's different ways of talking about it, and so I want to just kind of define it, hopefully in a simple way that's helpful for you. We've got a small crowd today, so I'm going to ask for some participation. Could anyone in a, a sentence, how would you define the kingdom of God? What was it? Yeah, mustard seed. There you go. All right. Yeah, the king has dominion. I think there's oftentimes we shy away a little bit from the kingdom of God because we're a bit uncertain exactly what it means for us. And people talk about it in really different ways. People can talk about it totally in a social way. Or people can talk about it as only in a future way. So the kingdom, I think, let's just define it. It is most basic, simple definition, which Dan helped us out with there, is the kingdom is God's rule and reign. It's God's rule and reign. That's kind of the realm of the kingdom of God. It's His rule and reign. And where people recognize and submit to that rule and reign, not much different than the commandment that we read together in ex- or we quoted together from the catechism. Secondly, for us in the Gospels, the kingdom of God is connected to the long-awaited coming of the Messiah. The coming of this Messiah inaugurates the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, as he introduces the ministry of Jesus Christ, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is here, repent and believe. I added that Jesus is here, but the, king, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And that's the announcement of Jesus is on the scene. It's been predicted for us all through Scripture It's been pictured for us in Eden. It's been pictured for us even in Israel under the reign of David as they kind of reach their pinnacle and height. But we've been waiting for something, and it's waiting for the Messiah. So the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. It is connected to the long-awaited coming of the Messiah. And then thirdly, the kingdom of God is the age to come breaking in to the age that is passing away. It is the age to come breaking in to the age that is passing away. And that is, you think, the kingdom that God has promised, those visions of Isaiah, those visions of John, 
No more tears, no more sorrow, perfect justice, mercy, love, compassion, redemption, rescue, all of that. We look around and we see like that's not our total experience right now. So does that mean the kingdom of God is not a hand? No, the kingdom of God, the age to come, has invaded this age right now. The light has invaded the darkness. And so we live now as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but in the midst of an age that is passing away. And in the church then, we are supposed to be that kingdom presence that, where the kingdom shines most brightly as a city within the city of man. And so the kingdom of God is rule and reign, the long way to Messiah, and it is where the age to come has invaded the age that is passing away. And so there is that kingdom is real and right now and among us, but it's not fully consummated. We haven't realized its full and entire blessings because the day of vengeance has not come when every enemy will be put away. And then there really will be no more tear, no more sorrow. So that's what we're talking about then to give you a framework when we talk about the kingdom of God. So we have seen Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom already, and so we now come to our text, verses 31 here to the end of the chapter. We're going to see mainly two points. There's going to be several observations and applications as well, but kind of the overarching thing is two points, and that is Jesus proclaims the kingdom and Jesus demonstrates the kingdom. And then... Like I said, we'll make some few observations there at the end. We'll see that indeed the sovereign authority and power of Jesus Christ will shine brightly as the age to come is invading the age that is passing away. We'll see Jesus' authority in the spiritual realm. We'll see His authority in the physical realm. So first of all, Jesus proclaims the kingdom. Look at verses 31 and 32. And this is a theme that has already been built, so we won't linger here long. But it says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. They were amazed at the teaching of Jesus Christ. I think there's three different ways, reasons why we can see this. One, he's, we're told that he is overcome with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. It's Spirit-empowered teaching. It's effective. Secondly, it is teaching that is so different than what they're used to hearing. The general teaching at, at that time would have been the scroll is read, it is ruled up and put away, the rabbi comes up, and then he typically is going to say, Okay, about this passage, this is what Rabbi so-and-so says about it. And this is what, you know, Rabbi, other Rabbi so-and-so says about it. And this, this group, this class of, of Rabbi says this about this passage. And kind of on it, on it goes, just footnoting, kind of like if we were just referencing commentators the whole time. And that's typically how it would have gone. They look at the Old Testament text and they start set, citing rabbinic teaching, rabbinic literature based on that text. Jesus Christ comes and He teaches wholly differently. Thus saith the Lord. 
is understanding his grasp as he takes what the Word of God says and he gives the meaning to it. And then on top of that, the fulfillment, the meaning is ultimately in Jesus Christ himself. As he would say, the Scripture is pointing to him. And that's why what they're amazed at is the authority of his teaching. It's spirit-empowered. He has such a grasp of it. And it is all pointing to himself. And they are astonished at the authority of the Word. As Jesus Christ proclaims the kingdom. Before we go further, I think a challenging application is just the authority of the Word. Jesus Christ teaches it, and He teaches it with ultimate authority. The Word is still the agent, the instrument about bringing kingdom change by the Spirit. It has absolute authority. Would we agree with that? I'm guessing all of us, most of us would say yes, as far as we're orthodox, we believe that the Word is authoritative. It is inerrant, it is inspired, it is sufficient, it is authoritative. At that level, yes, we believe it. But do we believe it practically all the time in all areas of life that all of the Scripture is always authoritative for us? And here's what I mean. is I think we start to then allow cultural and social pressure to influence just how authoritative the Scripture is to us. That's the impulse. Yes, it's authoritative, but when it starts people, well, we would say, well, you're old-fashioned and archaic and out of touch if you really believe that about the Bible, if you believe what it says about sexuality, if you believe what it says about marriage, if you believe what it says about sanctity of life, if, you, if you're holding to those sort of things, like, okay, let's sort of take a step back from the authority of the Bible and here's what it maybe meant and issues have changed. Suddenly, the authority of the Word, the legs are kicked out from under it. And now just becomes something for us to debate and try to take and make a point from. Is the Word authoritative when it comes to your viewing choices on TV, when it comes to your entertainment choices? I know it's not just a black and white issue where you can open up the Bible to Proverbs and it tells you that, you know, you're allowed to watch The Office, but you can't watch, I don't know, you name the show, whatever it is. But there's some things that are clear about that which is pleasing to the Lord, that which is true, that which brings life and doesn't promote death and immorality. Again, I'm not here to tell you what shows you can and can't watch. That's not the point. Do you dismiss the authority of the Word when it comes to those type of decisions? Or does it still stand authoritative in your life? When it comes to how we spend our money and our time, the Scripture lays out kingdom principles of generosity, of service to one another. It lays out principles of giving in the local church that you give to the ministry of the church. Again, the agent of God's kingdom in the world. But do we redefine what that means for us based on other choices we've made? 
Does our calendar not really reflect the authority of the Word? It more reflects, okay, here's all of my desires and how I want to spend my time, and then, you know, we'll kind of... The Word of God is authoritative all the time in all aspects of life. We can't just set it aside when it's convenient. Do we allow the Bible to be the authority on how we treat one another? When you think of Scripture telling us to be long-suffering, gentle, patient, gracious, forbearing, passing over minor offensive, putting others first, not gossiping, not stirring up strife. Or do we quickly gratify the flesh and do all of those things? Because, yeah, the Word of God says that, but it's just so much fun to give someone a, a good jab or take to social media and rip someone apart or whatever it might be. Does the Word of God have authority? Jesus proclaims the kingdom. He does so with authority. We move on. Jesus proclaims the kingdom. Jesus demonstrates the kingdom. See that Jesus demonstrates the power of the kingdom by showing His authority over the physical world and over the two specific incidences. Really, the big picture kingdom, another way to say is he has come to reverse the curse. Satan, the dominion of darkness, the dominion of this world, Jesus has come to reverse that corrupted by the fall. He has come to reverse the kingdom of God. Jesus has come to reclaim that. He has come to reverse the curse, if you would. Teaching does that. He does it with authority. The miracles are that. They're flashes of, of the healing. When we see demons cast out, when we see Jesus authoritative over the elements of that perfect, beautiful Eden and kingdom as He invades. And that's what those miracles, more than just of the kingdom, Jesus is demonstrating for us kingdom power. Kingdom life, there is no sickness, where there is no sorrow, where Satan has no authority in some But we see these flashes of total kingdom power. And in the big picture, that's what he is reversing the impacts and the effect of the fall and reestablishing his dominion now. It's not that Satan has authority over Christ now. His death. And then his resurrection that proved that sin and death and Satan and now are flashes of that kingdom. As Jesus proclaimed. So first, let's move then in our passage to verse out the demon. Demonstrates kingdom power. The spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. Adam, how did he? Does someone else's text say something very different than ha? So it has the idea the ha there, despite Adam's inflection, isn't like a laughter, you know, like a, I don't know, a text message, ha. Um, which is, there's one ha, you know. And it's not like a discovery, like, aha. It's more of like, a, that's why some, there's a little bit of disagreement on exactly how it should be translated, like, get away from us, ah. It's, okay, so that's the ha. Bogged down with ha. Uh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So the demon talking. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> Demons have no doubt who this is. They have no doubt the authority of Jesus Christ. Invasion of the kingdom of God into the domain of darkness. 
And they're dead on. Have you the devil? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appears was to destroy. <laughs> Later on in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the disciples are sent out in the name of Jesus. And so they come back and the report is this. The 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even... This is why the demons proclaim his name. It's not that they're worshiping. And they realize they can't stop it. Have you come to destroy us? This is the Holy One. The mission of Jesus, partly, is to come to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, you live and you feel like, when you look around, you feel like the domain of darkness and culture is going on, thriving and going in the opposite direction. And then I feel like I can't overcome these temptations and these anxieties and these, this sin that Jesus has come. And he's come to destroy the works of the devil. Mighty fortress where it talks about the prince of darkness grim and it builds up and in the end it goes, text. all it takes is a word from our God. There's a new song we've introduced, More Than Conquerors, and More Than Conquerors Through Christ. He has overcome this world, this life. We will not bow sinner to shame. We are defiant in your name. You are the fire that cannot be tamed. This isn't a self-righteousness. This isn't a self-brought-about victorious march. This is total than the works of Satan, the dominion of darkness. He has come to destroy the work. So they acknowledge, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In verse 35, it says, literally there when it says he rebuked, literally he denounced them. It's one who he rebukes them. He comes out and we see of kingdom power, a flash of the age to come invading the age that is passing away. As Luke 11 verse 20 would say, God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He demonstrates kingdom power secondly by healing the sick. Down to verse 38. It says, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Well, so he enters Peter's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill from a high, with a high, and Peter's married. I don't know, somehow I missed that, but uh, find out here. So he's at his mother-in-law's house, fever. This might be interesting to you if you're in the medical field. The actual term there is he has a great fever. In the century, he was really well-known, Gallon. And there's lots of writing that he did. The light fever is like, you know, get some medicine, get some rest, you'll be fine. Great fever is that sort of terminology. Well, it seems then apparent that these terms were in use with Luke. You remember of, get the friends and family, that's the end. I mean, she's on her deathbed. Verse 39, and he, Jesus, stood over her and rebuked the, denounces the demon, shows his authority, passes the demon. He does the same thing to the fevers. Not in the sense of necessarily like the, a specific all. That she has that fever. We've said it this way before, a fever. It's not because you gossiped yesterday that you have a fever today. In comes sorrow and decay and sickness. Both of them by Jesus. So he rebuked and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the son who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on them, every one of them, and healed them. They are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he by healing. And then the throngs start coming, and in compassion and powers he lays hands on them. We see just flash after flash of kingdom power upon us. And not <clears throat> Some people ask about why does he tell 
the demons, like they can't realize as who he is. They should let him share it. It seems to be when they're crying out, it's not and commotion, and it's just these demons somewhat, you could think, scree can't surprise us. We know who you are. So Jesus, demons in that way. Athanasius, really uh, old church father, has a Lord himself silenced them and forbade them to speak. He did this to keep them from sowing. He also wished us to get used to never listening to them, even though they seem to speak truth. I thought that's good. Typically when you're come, Satan comes to tempt you, not with just straight lies that are easy to see. It's a lot of truth and a little deception mixed in. Uh, early on in the garden, you see that's his pattern. To come with a lot of truth. So we see these just five observations then to end. And it's observations about the word of Some of them we've already made summary observations. Number one, the authoritative word of God which establishes the kingdom. That's going to be the first part of each thought. The authoritative word of God. The word of God is powerful. He speaks, demons obey. He speaks, and the fever is gone. They are amazed at his authority, amazed. The Word of God is still powerful. It does, not re- it does its work. It transforms lives. It's the means. The Word of God is powerful. Secondly, the authoritative Word of The Word of God brings a message of hope for those who recognize they are poor and desperate and need a Savior. The Word of God to them is offensive. They hate it. Truth in your life. People don't want that. They hate it. As a bomb, as a joy to those who in humility by faith embrace it. To those who don't want it, who don't embrace it by faith. We've seen people in his hometown when he laid out for the kingdom is marked by humility and faith. Did hear in it. Enough they wanted to kill him. Today, the Word of God, back away from the Word and give some sort of moralistic deism that is, that's way less offensive. That's why people outside of America, around the world, hate it. It has an offense to it. And so I'd say two things. Don't be surprised. Nothing to do with it. It's going to be offensive. Secondly, be courageous. Start ignoring the Word of God because it's offensive to some. We know that's going to happen. It is the sweetest bomb and greatest hope they can ask for. The kingdom is Jesus. Was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only. In a sense, Jesus is the kingdom. Luke 17, verse 21. As Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and there's all kinds of questions coming back. Well, where is the kingdom of God? What is it? He ends with this. He would say, here's the answer. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. There the kingdom is. Graham Goldology teaches this. He says, Jesus embodies the kingdom motif of God's people and God's true Son, obedient to the Father, God's rule. Jesus is both the faithful ruler and the righteous citizen of the kingdom. 
Number four, on mission. Did you notice what happened when slowly comes around? It says, verse 39, And he stood over her, rebuked the fever. First of all, it teaches us when Jesus heals you, you're healed. You don't begin to get better. You're sick, you're well. But then we also see in bed for the next couple days. She immediately gets up and serves. I think Luke, example, when kingdom power comes, when we experience kingdom power, it sets us on who brought us the healing. Not just that. Matthew Henry writes, Where Christ gives a new life in recovery from sickness, He designs and expects that it should be a new life indeed, spent more than ever in His service to His glory. If oppression be rebuked and we arise from a bed of sickness, we must set ourselves to minister to Jesus Christ. Those that minister to Christ also must be ready to minister to all that are His for His sake. Kingdom is not the exact same thing as the kingdom, but it is the agent of the kingdom in this age. Not only should it be modeling that, but it should also be on mission proclaiming it to others. 1 Peter 2, 9, 10 calls the church, says, You are a royal priesthood, a holy heir, the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We do it in proclamation. And we do it in born be filled. We put action to our words. We in our midst who need help. We don't exist giving favoritism to those who we feel can help us in the long run. We love each. And then fifthly, or fifth, fifthly, is victorious. Back in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life has not overcome it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think sometimes we get the wrong, you know, God's going to keep it from totally breaking in. You realize the image is the exact opposite. We are on the offensive. The kingdom is on the offensive. The church is on the march. And it's saying the gates of hell can't hold you back. He's going to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to do it through his church. It is victorious. It is promised. We know it's promised because the life of Jesus Christ, He defeated Satan in temptation. He lives perfectly in His life. He, when He raises from the dead, it's all proven out. Sin, death, Satan, nothing has hold on Him. He's defeated the enemy right there. Victory is already secured. And now, fades an age that is passing away, but still moving forward, Ultimate victory is assured and promised. There is hope. There is joy. Your journey now might be really hard. You might hate it at times. It might go totally different than you want it. There might be rejection. There might be failure. There will be temptation. But there is joy. There is grace. There is surety in it all because victory is yours at the end. 
just talking to someone a little earlier, that's why we say we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not, I have to overcome this one person or this one obstacle. But the curtain's drawn back and we see the spiritual warfare. People, children, citizens of the kingdom, this is what we're assured of. Spiritual warfare feel those fiery darts at times. The church, again, it's not the kingdom But it is the agent of the kingdom and it is the place where the kingdom should shine most brightly. Where that authority and commitment to the word, those displays of power, those marks of the kingdom, really the fruit of the spirit, should be within the church. That there should be a different atmosphere within the people of God, within the church. It doesn't feel like and look like just like the Asia is passing away, but is marked by kingdom power, that is marked by forgiveness, that is marked by love, that is marked by patience, that is marked by humility, not by self-indulgence and in it for me. The The church will be victorious. Lots of little local churches will fall apart at times. Be and look in the city here in Pittsburgh. But the bride of Christ, Jesus will return for her bride, present her blameless glory face to face with our God. That's a victory that the church right now has an atmosphere of the kingdom of God. That the king is the king here. Jesus in our midst. Healing, oppression, bondage, all of that being overcome as Jesus sets us free through the Word. Yes, we still experience the fall, which marks this age as passing away, but in a totally different atmosphere as citizens of the kingdom to come. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You. Praise you that it is victorious. I pray that this sermon lands in our ears and our minds and where it rightly reflects the Word of God and His truth to us. Might it change our hearts and our lives. Might it allow us to trust Jesus more.